This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Cents, the show all about personal finance, and I'm Simwi Boon. Last month, the Ministry of Finance made a startling revelation that almost half of EPF's 14 million members have less than 10,000 ringgit in savings, with almost 4 million of them having less than 1,000 ringgit. So this, this means that there is a high likelihood that a majority of Malaysians, especially those in the lower and middle income group, will live in poverty in an old age unless mitigation measures are taken. The situation comes off the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic, which saw major EPF withdrawals and a dr- dramatic rise in a number of gig workers in the country. So how can we address this issue and reverse the severe retirement crisis we might face in the near future? Joining me to discuss this is Balkis Yusuf, the Head of Strategy Management Department at the EPF, or also known as the Employees Provident Fund. Good morning and thank you and welcome to the show, Balkis. All right, so let's start off. Um, there have been headlines on the impact of you know, Isina, Ilestari and Aichitra withdrawals, which was necessary for some. But just exactly how much has been withdrawn to date? What has been the impact of COVID-19 to the EPF member savings? So it's $101 billion has okay. been withdrawn. Okay. from the three types of programs. So like um, a total of 7.4 million members below the age of 55, and we have about 12.6 million members age, below age 55. So we have another 2 million or so above the age of 55 because they make the total 15 million members that we have. So because you see, we allow withdrawal full withdrawal at age of 55. So that's why we are looking at this age group below the age of 55. So let me give you some breakdown of the people that have taken out the three facilities. So in total, 7.4 million members below the age of 55 had taken this withdrawal, representing close to 60% of members below the age of 55. So if I look at Lestari, 5.3 million members had taken up Ilestari. Sinar is more popular. 6.6 million members had taken up, taken up Isinar. 5.2 million members had taken up Aichitra. But if you look at members taking up one or two or three combination of any of the above that I had mentioned, it made 7.4 million people who had then applied for this facility and successfully withdrawn and they had taken up about 101 billion in total, but depending on their eligibility, they can take up any amount in between 21,000 to 71,000. And of course, following the withdrawals, we project some 6.1 million or nearly half of the 12.6 million members below the age of 55 will have less than 10,000 in their accounts uh, by December. Right? But before this, we do have people not having um, more than 10K, but that's, the number is only 4.7 million people. So this means that because of these unprecedented withdrawals, we have close to 30% increase in members not having even 10K in their account. So out of that 6.1 million with critically low savings, which we call 10,000 is critically low savings because if you translate that into minimum pension, that means you have about 54 ringgit per month, right? But out of this number, 3.6 million members will have 
near zero savings or less than 1,000 in their accounts, right? So if we follow the concept, what is construed, uh, construed as adequate savings, only about 4% of the EPF members are able to have a reasonable standard of living. And I'm talking here numbers that that's beyond poverty line, of course, about 2,500 ringgit that is required for an elderly who live in uh, Klang Valley, you know, a single elderly, to be able to have a dignified living. They need about 2,500 a month, and that translates into 600,000. So if we measure everyone in accordance to the 600,000 or adequate savings, it means that about 4% uh, of EPF members are able to live at that level. Yeah. So I'm just talking from the EPF savings perspective. It is hoped that members have some other assets or savings stashed away somewhere else. Because if we look at national savings rate for households, it's negative if we take out EPF savings from the equation. What does that show? It means savings culture is not strong in this country. And maybe this could due to multiple factors, low income or low wages, unable to differentiate between wants and needs, high cost of living, so on and so forth, lack of minimum wage that came into effect quite delayed in our country and therefore the, the EPF savings was measured differently, right? So there are so many factors that's con contributing to this and we need to do something, of course. Okay, so before you talk about the solutions, just one more question about these withdrawals. I mean, do you have any indication on how the members might have spent their savings? Absolutely. We do measure the numbers and maybe let me talk about maybe ICNR first, we do have indication on how they spend the money. We conducted a survey out of the 6.6 .6 million members taking up ICNR, 600,000 had responded to this survey. And by any measure, that's a large number of people that have responded to a survey, right? And out of this number, about 87% of the applicants under ICNAR declared that they use it to pay for daily expenses and basic needs, yeah, or other urgent needs such as debt repayment. About maybe 10% say that they use it to purchase other things, gold or renovation or other things that we may not be construed as, you know, as really in dire need uh, to live, uh, you know, or support their livelihoods. As for Aichitra, we learn from the experience of ICNAR, we make it mandatory for people to state what they use it for. And 62% of applicants said that they use it to finance daily essential expenditure. Another 28% said that they need to use it to pay rent for their houses or pay debt that are critical because the banks are chasing them for other debts that they own for credit card or something. So all in all, all 5 million people answered about 80 to 90% say that they really need to use it for something that we consider as essential. Okay, so realistically, what are some of the measures that someone can immediately implement to rebuild their savings? I think there are multiple ways to, to do your savings because EPF has great products that we can help people uh, in order to build up their savings. So one of the first things that I may have to share will be you know, we plan to recoup the savings that was withdrawn during these unprecedented times because I had mentioned never before had we allowed withdrawals from account one. So withdrawals from account two are pretty common because we allow people to do for their pre-retirement needs. Yeah. So whenever people tap into their account one, uh, we we actually will recover that back through when they have an income 
and then whatever they had withdrawn from account one will then be put into account one first, right? So until they have paid back all the total amount that they had taken from account one and replenish it, then will the uh, the allocation of 7030 uh, go back to normalcy. Yeah? So I would like to say that the country's economy is now on the path to recovery, supported by reopening of more sectors. So we will help people to restore, restore and rebuild their savings to ensure that they secure a dignified retirement. Uh, th this means that the EPF will see that those that have an income or they have a job, their contributions will go into account one first. Until the full sum is withdrawn and uh, that is withdrawn is recovered, no funds will flow into account two. Yeah. So members are made aware of this policy when they sign up or they apply for Lestari or Sinar or or even Chitra. Yeah? So in a way, I would like to see this as an interest-free loan. So once the full payments are made, the contributions allocation will go back to current practice of 70-30 into account one and account two respectively. So apart from that, I don't know if you know this, for any person who work in the private sector or has some kind of dependency on an on an employer, they actually can contribute more than statutory rate of 11% from the workers' portion of contributions. We are familiar with employers providing higher than the required contributions rates, like of 12% or 13%, they can pay like 14 or 15%, right? Because they can benefit from the tax relief that the government then, uh, you know, uh, allow them to take that uh, as a benefit for staff. But for workers, it's not so common. So we already have a product, we call it voluntary access. So we allow anyone from the private sector to contribute more than the 11% or now we are at 9% from their own portion. So members can actually contribute up to 100% of their salary. So to illustrate this power of voluntary access. So let's take a person called Bella and she's 21 years old. She gets a salary of 1000 per month. So if she maintains her 11% deductions, you know, by the age of 60, she has 550,000. But if she said that, you know, I want to put more, I put 2% more across my life cycle, you know, and until I retire, she'll end up with more than 600,000. So that's one portion. That's not assuming her employer is putting in something else as well. So if Bella's employer puts in some amount that is higher than the statutory rate, Bella could end up with 700,000 ringgit well above the adequacy that I mentioned just now. But for instance, she stopped working. Now I don't have an employer, I become a freelancer. But if Bella remains resolute in putting higher savings to make up for the lost opportunity from the employer's contribution, she can also put in her self-contributions. So also, we have a product called voluntary contributions, which allow contributions not only from self, we allow from for family members or even Sim, if you like me so much, you can you can contribute for me. We allow spouses, children, or other third party individuals to contri contribute on your behalf. Institutions also may top up, like zakat, NGOs, or we feel that this person may not be able to have a dignified retirement because they come from hardcore, uh, you know, marginalized society. Also, institutions can put in and we allow a total of 60,000. 
So besides the savings products that I mentioned just now, members can also delay their withdrawal and continue to keep their savings in EPF you know, to earn annual dividend until they reach the age of 60. So do you know that if I'm 55, I defer just by five years and say that I'm not going to take it out because I, I'm still working? So that five years will see the amount grow by 50%. So it's, assuming I have 200,000, I just say, okay, I'm going to take it up uh, at age 60, uh, age 60, yeah, that will grow into 400,000. If I defer 10 years and say that I'm going to take it up until the age of 65 because I have other things that can keep me going, that number will double up. Okay, and we're going to take a short break for some messages. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense, and I'm Sim Weeboon. And today's topic is on EPF and how COVID-19 and the withdrawals have impacted EPF members' savings. Uh, joining me in this show is Barkis Yusuf, the Head of Strategy Management Department for EPF. Um, so, Barkis, I want to now ask you, it's estimated about 4 to 5 million of working population in Malaysia are now freelancers, gig workers. So it could, could be assumed that they don't make monthly contributions. So what I want to ask is like, how then can we get these freelancers to sign up and contribute voluntarily? So basically in Malaysia, we have a labour force of 16 million people. Uh, and the EPF members are about 15 million. Out of the 15 million members in EPF, about half are active members. So that means they are working and contributing. The other half are inactive members. So that means a lot of people are either in, uh, you know, in freelancing job or even not working anymore. They could be doing something else because they now become students or they stop working because they are taking care of family members, right? So out of the total uh, labor force of 16 million, we can break down into two parts. One is the formal uh, labor force, which is around 12 million people, and another 4 million to 6 million who are uh, in the uh, informal sector, so to speak. So for the informal sector, we have a great product uh, that is pushed through by the government, but whereby the government actually pays up 15% of the person's contributions and, uh, you know, subject to 250 ringgit per year for an informal sector or anyone who can prove that they do not have an employer contributing to them because we can see that there's only a single contribution. There's no employer contribution. So, so if I put it forward to you, right? So if I'm working in the informal sector, government gives me 15% and I top up through the EPF, uh, you know, dividend of 5 to 6%, you are getting a return of 21% in a single year. So we are urging parents of students and all that because you can already start contributing at the age of 16. So please do that and come forward and sign up your children or even the, the people who are working as freelancers and all that. So sign up to this product. And of course, if you don't have an income that month, you don't have to do it. But if you have an income, let's put a small portion, even 5%, you know, or whatever amount you're comfortable with. 10 ringgit, 20 ringgit, it's fine. At least you're building your retirement pot. Let me put in perspective as well for a person to optimize the 250 ringgit, they need to put close to 1,700 uh, in a single year and that translates into maybe less than 200 ringgit or 167 ringgit per month, you know. Or if you look at it on a day-to-day -day basis, just put 4 ringgit in a day, right? And you get total 250 ringgit, which the government will top up. Okay, but, okay. you know, outside of self-contributing or contributing by self, I mean, 
could it be also considered that maybe it might be necessary for people to actually work longer and therefore raising the retirement age beyond 60? What are your thoughts on that? If you look at aging, of course, the whole world is aging. Life expectancy in our country has increased from 54 years old in 1950s to 76 years old in 2021. So we have improved life expectancy greatly. And if you look at the capacity of human body, we can be absent of disease up to 90 to 95 years old. Even if Malaysia's life expectancy is at 76 or 75, we are throwing a good 15 to 20 years on the table to live a life free of disease. And if I scrutinize the number you know, a, a little bit deeper, healthy life expectancy for Malaysians is 66 years old for male and 68 years old for female. So what does that mean? It means that male can work some seven years after the, the age of 60. And for female, we have the capacity to work another eight years because that's their healthy life expectancy. So there is room to improve the retirement age. But however, I want to caution that we need to do it gradually. So for instance, if the gap between life expectancy in Malaysia today is 76 or 75 years old and the retirement age is 60, let's peg, uh, you know, and look at the difference of life expectancy to retirement age and keep it at 15 years. So if life expectancy now increases by one year from 75 to 76 in the last two years, so let's increase the retirement age by one year. So that way, we are not hoarding the system and we are gradually looking at the labor force in a gradual manner, right? So you don't have like when we did it the last time, we have five years of non-retirement. There are those that also believe that the real root of the problem is that, you know, Malaysians generally, we earn too little. So by that, by that fact that even to retire an EPF is already not viable. So perhaps this is more structural. And, you know, again, maybe Malaysians are not aware that like how much they exactly need to retire comfortably per month to live a longer life, right? I mean, is there a number to that? Is there, how do we increase this awareness? How do we know that what is a safe number to retire on for I think there are multiple ways to look at it. It depends on you yourself, right? Do I want to live a minimalist lifestyle? Do I want to go jet setting around the world and travel while I have my free time? Or do I want to play golf or just have a very simple life? So what you need will be quite dependent on the lifestyle choices or what you can potentially accumulate, of course, right? So first, we have the basic savings, which we say that, you know, if you want, uh, you know, slightly like a poverty line income kind of thing, but assuming you have other wealth outside there or your children are contributing, then maybe 240 can still allow you to lead a dignified dignified life, but it may be not so ideal for anyone. So we are saying that based on our Belanjaga Wanku, a single elderly needs around 2,472 ringgit to live in Klang Valley. Of course, the numbers uh, get lower in different cities and I'm pleased to say that we have the numbers for about 12 cities in Malaysia, right? So, which we'll be launching soon. So, if we look at that, those numbers, so technically, we would like for people to accumulate up to 600,000 to say that you have some semblance of adequacy, right? So, of course, we will tell you about certain age, you need to have how much, how much for you to be 
poised to meet the 600,000. But of course, it's aspirational. For someone who has 1 million, you may tell me it's a lot, Sim. But 1 million, if I break it down into, you know, uh, my monthly income for 20 years is only 4,000 ringgit. So the question to ask you is that, although it's above the 2,472 ringgit required for an elderly, is 4,000 okay for you? I don't know. As a as a simple rule of thumb, I would like to say this. Look at your current income or expenditure today. So if you earn 5,000, you know, so you say I finish all my 5,000. So if you do not want any deterioration of your lifestyle, right, you want to live at 5,000, the same a standard of living that you are having today, you times 12, times 20 years, you need 1.2 million. So, but if you think that you need 10,000 as your household income or your current income, you times 12 times 20, you get 12, uh, 2.4 million. So, but the question to ask is, will your life expectancy be higher than that? There is a life expectancy calculator. So, if I look at my own life expectancy, I have a 50 or 60% chance to live up to 93 years old. Both my maternal and paternal grandfathers live to be close to 100 years old. So if you want to prepare for 20 years, you'll, you'll be okay if you have enough. But if you're going to live longer, then you need more, right? So another rule of thumb is that because people assume when you reach 60, you don't have the big ticket loan items. So another rule of thumb that you can apply is say that if I need 10,000 today, because I do not have the big ticket item loans, I can take 60 to 70% of my current income times 12 times 20. That is also another way to look at it. Yeah. But of course, it depends on your lifestyle, how you envision it, where you're going to stay. Are you going to downsize? Are you going to stay with your family? Or are you going to be alone? Or do you want to go, uh, you know, be very independent or you don't have children? So therefore, your circumstance uh, will change, right? So mm. what is aging? Aging is associated with multiple things. We cannot say that everyone will work forever, right? So Retirement, of course, is a new construct. It, it became popular in 19th century or 20th century construct. Before that, people don't retire because if I'm a fisherman, I will work for life. But life expectancy then was 35 years old. But I'm not saying that nobody lives to be 100 or 90 years old. They do, but the proportion is so small that it doesn't worth mentioning, you know. But right now, people are going to live longer and, uh, you know, but the question is, are you going to be healthy? So aging is associated with loss of mobility, loss of cognitive decline, loss of physical abilities to carry a heavy object. So your mm. work cannot be laborious. If you're a surgeon, you can still work your, if your hands are still quite stable, right? Way into your 90s. Or your teacher, you can still use your verbal or articulation skills to do that and, and still teach people. But some jobs you cannot do forever, right? So it's also associated with poverty. If I want to mention that. So, for instance, in Malaysia, the relative poverty, yeah, you know that out of the elderly cohort, 41% of the elderly cohort, out of total elderly, they are part of the B17. So, if you look at Malaysian B40 households, 65% of the elderly are part of Malaysian B40. If you look at Malaysian B40, B60, more than 80-85% of elderly are in the B60. What does that say? Aging is associated with poverty. So if we don't save now, we don't have other means, we're not healthy to work forever, we are in trouble. Retirement conundrum is looming ahead. 
And because retirement takes years to plan, we will come to our face like a thunderbolt. Suddenly, and we find ourselves people not able to, uh, you know, take care of themselves because there are different kind of savings, right? So they need to. We, we need to have infrastructure to support this future phenomenon. It's a grey rhino. It's not a black swan. It's a grey rhino. The signals are pointing there, and we need to act. And the time to act is yesterday, but maybe it's now. Uh, that's all the time we have for Ringgit and Sense. I've been speaking to Balkis Yusuf, the Head of Strategy Management Department for the EPF. Join us again next week for more discussions on personal finance. We have the 10am News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. Ringgit and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.